So, I don't know, maybe a year or so ago, I talked about a book called 1984. I don't know if you guys remember that introduction to the sermon. And I gave away spoilers. And maybe you're like, that's okay. You know, I planned on reading the book. He gave me spoilers, but I actually forgot. Well, I'm about to remind you again. 1984 is written by George Orwell, uh, Orwell and it's a, a dystopian novel uh, about this country named Oceana. And there is this government there. There's a, a guy there named Big Brother. And Big Brother, he oversees the nation. He puts out fake news. He tries to control the people. He spies on the people. And the protagonist in the book is a man named Winston Smith. And Winston, he's not like the other one. He's not like, the book doesn't use this, this, but essentially everybody else in the book are sheep and he understands what's going on. And uh, he is not going to fall for the traps of Big Brother. He's going to do something about it. And he's heard about this underground resistance. They're going to fight back against Big Brother. So Winston goes to a meeting. And while he's at that meeting, there's this man named O'Brien and the thought police, they betray Winston. And Winston's arrested. Winston's captured. He's charged with treason. He gets locked up. One way you could just put this is that he's in chains. He is enslaved. He can't go anywhere. He does whatever Big Brother wants him to do. What do you think Big Brother does next after he has Winston? Well, even though Winston has been captured, even though he has been externally enslaved, so to speak, that's not enough for Big Brother. He wants slavery of the mind. He wants you to not only be locked up, he wants you to agree with him. You have to believe the way he does. And so, he takes Winston through retraining. It's actually just mental torture. And he's convincing Winston of the ways of Big Brother. And this book stayed with me for so long because about, I probably thought about this book for a week after reading it, just couldn't stop thinking about it. But the most poignant thing I ever read was at the very end. And it's about this man named Winston who I've been talking about and the whole book he hates Big Brother. But at the very end, he said, Big Brother won. I love Big Brother. So, Big Brother succeeded in internally enslaving him. Slavery of the mind. If we rewind that story a little bit, what would it have taken for Winston to be freed? Well, you might think, well, there is underground resistance he's talking about, but I don't think that actually existed in the book. I thought that was made up by Big Brother to draw out dissenters. But what essentially Winston would have needed, to say the very least and in a very general way, he needed somebody that is stronger than Big Brother, somebody that is stronger than his captors. Last week, we looked at the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Next week, we're going to look at how Jesus defeats Satan on the cross. And today, we're going to look uh, at how the cross brings a new exodus. 
might need to define what Exodus means. If you go to like, I think Miriam or, or something like that, it's going to say a mass departure of people. But you put that into a biblical context, it's a mass departure of people from slavery. It's liberation. If I could start over, I would have rearranged the order because I like to do things in a linear fashion. I would have started with penal substitutionary atonement, then went to the defeat of Satan, and then went to liberation because the way that Satan's head is crushed is through penal substitutionary atonements, and through that our chains are broken and we receive the Holy Spirit. But it is what it is. So, why teach theology? Why talk about the storyline of Scripture? On your handouts, there's a quote uh, from New Testament scholar and my old pastor, Tom Schreiner. And this is an article he wrote on Nine Marks. I'm not going to read it all. You can read it in your free time. But basically, he's saying that a lot of people just want, they want sermons that are heavy in application. And he said that might be able to transform somebody but if you're not teaching theology, there's always the danger of falling into heresy. The wolf of heresy is always ready to attack the sheep, and so we need theology. And he even goes so far, this is, a, this is a, an article about biblical theology, which one part of biblical theology is looking at the grand narrative, the storyline of scripture, and he says, Christians need to know that. Christians need to know that storyline. And I want you all to understand theology. I want you all to understand the storyline of scripture in such a way that you understand when a counterfeit is being presented to you, right? You need to know what's truth so well that you know when someone is telling you something that is a counterfeit gospel or is not true. Often, what we do is we'll plant on a single text, and from there I'll often go back and talk about the storyline. Today we're going to do something a little different. I don't know if I've ever done a sermon like this, but we're just going to follow the storyline of Scripture today. We're going to start uh, closer to the beginning, near the Exodus, and come uh, to the rest of Scripture. And here's a roadmap. If you need a roadmap, here's a roadmap. We're going to first look at the storyline. We're going to talk about some application, and then we're going to go back to the storyline, and then go back to application. So this morning, I'm going to ask you to put your thinking caps on. Think about what I'm saying. Please really uh, pay attention, because I think if you can see how Scripture teaches a new exodus, it'll not only be interesting, but it'll be transforming to you. After the original exodus, what was the Israelites' biggest problem? If you had to say what their biggest problem after the original exodus, what would that be? Well, before we even get to the original exodus, we need to be clear about uh, what happened before that. How did the Jews end up in Egypt? Well. There's a man named Joseph, and he was sold into slavery by his brothers. Joseph eventually uh, befriended, uh, well, uh, sorry, he made friends while in Egypt with Pharaoh, and then he rose in the ranks and then became prince of Egypt. 
And then he had a point where his brothers and his family came to Egypt and he was uh, able to be merciful to them uh, because there was a famine going on and he allowed them to stay there and he gave them food. Well, what happened? Eventually, that Pharaoh died. And Joseph, the one that Joseph was friends with, he, he died and there was a new Pharaoh, a new king. And what did this new Pharaoh want to do? Well, he looks out, he sees the Israelites growing and growing and growing and growing, and he starts getting scared. He says, you see, they're going to keep growing, they're going to keep multiplying, and they're going to overthrow us. And so what's he tell them to do? He goes to the midwives and says, you know, drown them in the river. They won't do it, but eventually he has somebody else, he has others go and throw the Jewish boys into the river. Every Jew, uh, that male that is born, he has them thrown into the river and drowned. How awful is that? How horrible is that? I will say God is going to later have something for Pharaoh as well. He's not only going to kill their firstborn males, but he's also going to drown them in the river or in the sea. But let's fast forward from that point. There's 10 plagues, and those other plagues are very relevant. We just don't have time to look at them. But there's 10 plagues, and on the ninth plague, what happened? Darkness over the land. Remember, darkness over the land. The darkness, it covered the land for three days. And this darkness, it symbolized God's judgment and that God's judgment is coming. And then the next plague, the 10th plague, which was the death of the firstborn son. So in the exodus of Egypt, there was an option. Either the firstborn son dies or there is the blood of a lamb on your doorpost and God will pass over and his wrath will not fall on you. If you didn't want your firstborn son to die, you put the blood of the lamb on your doorpost and God will pass over you, which is why it's called Passover. At your handout, I have five characteristics of the Passover lamb. I actually have four. I was changing this to the last minute. So I have five. You guys probably have four on your sheet. But look at them really quick. One is that the lamb needs to be perfect. Two is that the lamb couldn't have broken bones. Three, the lamb had to be eaten. Four, the lamb had to be sacrificed. Five, the lamb had to be remembered. Now, I know we looked at the Passover briefly last time, but what we focused on last time was how the wrath of God is averted, how the lamb is a propitiation last time. This time we're looking at it from a different angle. Last time it's about averting wrath. This time it's about seeing that what happened immediately after the Passover was the liberation, the freedom of the Jewish people. After the Passover lamb, the Jews left the slavery of Egypt and went into the wilderness. And through this, we see obviously that God is just, he's more powerful than the other gods of Egypt, the the gods of Egypt. He's also more powerful than Pharaoh. And so the Israelites, they go through the waters, they uh, go into the wilderness, but what happens to them when they get into the wilderness? 
They begin grumbling. They begin complaining, right? Uh, they complain about Aaron. They complain about Moses. They complain about God. They complain about what's on the menu. And then eventually they go so far as worshiping a golden calf. When God frees us from something, he does it so that we can be slaves to something else, which is himself. And what we're seeing in the Exodus is that they were externally freed from Egypt, but they were still internally enslaved and not free to obey God. They were not slaves to God. They couldn't be slaves to God. They were slaves to sin. In that book I was discussing, 1984, there's a slogan they use, and Big Brother uses the slogan, and it says, slavery, or, freedom is slavery. Now in the book that's presented as being wrong, but the Bible presents that as being true. Freedom is slavery. When you think about when slavery began, it was actually with Adam in the garden deciding he wants to do things his own way. He wants to be free from God's rule. And those sins enslaved him. We need to be slaves to a greater master, to a good master. And we need the ability to obey that master. Until the Israelites have been set free from sin, they are not free to obey God. And this shows that there's actually a more fundamental problem happening uh, than just the slavery of Egypt. It's showing that there's a bigger, more fundamental problem if you're following the storyline of Scripture. God is using Israel to save the world, as he said with Abraham, but his people are still enslaved, even after freeing them from, the, uh, from Egypt. On your handout, you're going to see a quote. Uh, it's the third quote. It's by Andrew Wilson, and he wrote a great book on uh, the Exodus. Uh, well, it's about seeing Exodus throughout Scripture. But listen to what he says. He says, The greatest threats to true freedom, it seems, do not come from external oppression, but within. True slavery is captivity of the soul, not just the body. Until a nation or person is freed from that and free to become what they were originally intended to be, their Exodus is incomplete. If you guys don't have a handout, by the way, they're still on the, in the very back. We're going to be going to that a few times. So what Israel needs is another exodus. Not externally, but internally. That's what the exodus is actually pointing to all along. Last week we talked about the legal penalty that sin creates. But today we're not focusing on sin's penalty. We're focusing on the power of sin, focusing on sin's power. Around us, all of us, since birth, there has been an invisible chain on us. We all have invisible chains because we have exchanged the love for God for a love for sin. That sin that we love so much has enslaved us, keeps us in bondage. Paul said in, in Romans 7 that he is of the flesh sold under slavery to sin. Jesus said whoever sins is a slave to sin. These are all Exodus themes. 
You guys have heard, uh, I'm going to use my own story to illustrate uh, my own slavery to sin. Um, you guys have probably heard the story a few times, but looking at it a different way today. Uh, before I came to Jesus, I used to try to uh, reform myself many times. I remember uh, one of the first things I tried to do is like, I knew the right way. I knew I should believe in Jesus because I went to church a couple times. I raised my hand. I prayed a prayer before. And so I knew that I need to follow Jesus even though, you know, I'm doing drugs. I'm drinking a bottle of vodka every night. Um, I'm partying and everything that comes with that. And so I'm like, I'm going to change. I'm going to reform myself. And so I decided first I'm going to stop cussing. And for about three days, I stopped cussing. And I was very proud of myself. I remember uh, one day at work, I was actually upset because nobody was noticing. And I had to ask someone at work, have you noticed I stopped cussing? And they're like, yeah, I did. What's that about? <laughs> but... I tried to do this reformation for myself and I made it about a week. And after I did that, somebody finally, they called me on the phone. Uh, I can't remember, maybe it was a message. As somebody I was talking to at the time, they just said, do you wanna go to Berlin for the weekend? And I went. And all the partying and everything else. And I've talked about my alcohol addiction before. I did, I used to drink a bottle of vodka every single night. No kidding, no exaggeration, every night. And it was so bad actually that when I ran out of money because I'm buying so much alcohol, I used to look around my room and try to find things that I could pawn or sell so I could buy another bottle of vodka. I just had to have more. In both of those instances, it wasn't my friend calling me to go to Berlin. It wasn't the vodka wanting me to sell my things to buy more. It was my master sin calling me. And when sin calls because it is my master, it was my master, I follow. These chains are real. They're very real. All of humanity is born in chains, and we need to be freed. We need an exodus. How does the Old Testament say that we're going to be freed from these chains? How does the Old Testament teach that we're going to be freed from sin? There's so many places, and I had so much trouble. I was thinking uh, on Friday, I didn't get done till like five, after five o'clock on Friday with this sermon because there were so many texts I could go to and I just couldn't land on one or two uh, because there's many, but I have to just focus on maybe one or two. Uh, but today I decided that uh, we're gonna start with Isaiah. I'm gonna go to a place in Isaiah. Really quick, I'm going to give you a, a review of Isaiah, a summary of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, there are two kingdoms. Uh, if you don't know, uh, after, uh, Jeroboam, uh, when he became king after Solomon, they, the, the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms. There's a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom has gone into slavery into Assyria, and the southern kingdom is about to go into Babylon. 
Isaiah is writing after uh, the, southern king, or the northern kingdom has gone to Assyria, and he's writing before the northern kingdom goes into Babylon. And what he tells them, he teaches them, is that there's going to be a new exodus for both the southern and the northern kingdom. There's going to be a new exodus. God's going to bring you out. In the original Exodus, Moses uses a, a term over and over again. He talks about uh, the mighty arm of God or the mighty hand of God rescuing them. He saved us with a mighty arm. He says that over and over again. And the same thing in Isaiah, uh, a mighty arm is mentioned again. Uh, first, I want to show you a text, just one text from the original Exodus. But he says, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. And what it means is, uh, in, in Isaiah, is God's going to use his mighty arm again to bring us into a new exodus. Now, uh, I'm going to show you a text from Isaiah. First, in Isaiah 52, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So there's this idea, he's bared his holy arm. This idea is that Israel has... Uh, because of their sins, they broke the covenant, they've gone into Assyria and Babylon, I'm gonna have to do a new Exodus work. But this time, it's not just an external work. I'm going to roll up my sleeves, bare my arms, and I'm gonna do a new mighty work for Israel that frees them from sin, frees them from the thing that got them into Babylon and Assyria to begin with. Now look at these texts. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals and there will be a highway as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. So you see in that text, there's all the characteristics of a new exodus. Egypt is another type and look at what God is going to do to the river with, he's going to break it into many channels. It also says with his breath he's going to do that. And verse 16 it says, there will be a highway. There's going to be a highway. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm going to make a place in the water. There's going to be a highway. There's going to be a place for people to walk through just as I did for Israel all the way back in Egypt. There's going to be a new coming exodus, a worldwide exodus. What is Isaiah usually known for on the popular level? I think Carol's telling me, I'm not sure. But, uh, Isaiah 50, yeah, she said Isaiah 53. Usually... Uh, everybody, if you know anything about Isaiah, it's Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. But what you should know is, yes, there is the suffering servant. It's teaching that he is going to free us from the penalty of sin. But what we see is that this new exodus is going to happen through the suffering servant. You have to read the context. The new exodus is going to happen through a Moses-like suffering servant. He's going to die for our sins, and then we're going to pass through the highway of the river, and as one author said, we're going to leave sin and death drowning in the background. 
We're going to leave sin and death just drowning in the background. Isaiah teaches a new exodus. I don't think I have time, so I'm not going to really go to Daniel 9. Uh, I can't, but in your free time, go to Daniel 9, and when you get there, know that we talked about in Isaiah, Israel is going into Babylon. Well, Daniel is actually in Babylon. He's living under the prophecy of Isaiah and Jeremiah. And Jeremiah said, you're going to be in Babylon 70 years. Daniel said, and so in Daniel 9, he's praying to God. He's praying, when is this new exodus going to happen? Jeremiah said 70 years. When is it going to happen? It's been like 66 years or so, I think. It's been about 66 years. When's this going to happen? And then an angel comes and, and he tells Daniel, um, well, not 70 years, but 70 times 7 essentially uh, 490 uh, years. But what, uh, the thing is, is they did go back uh, at about a 70-year point. They did go back to Israel. They left Babylon. But what he's saying is, is there's going to be an external exodus from Babylon at the 70-year mark, like Jeremiah said, but there's going to be a spiritual exodus in about 500 years. And guess who comes about 500 years later? That's how the Old Testament ends, though. Israel is sinful. They are still in chains. They are still in bondage. They're covenant breakers. The whole world actually is enslaved. But what the prophets are teaching is that there's going to be a worldwide exodus, a mass departure of people leaving the kingdom of darkness leaving behind sin and death and coming into an eternal promised land. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever and you're not sure what all this Exodus talk is about, essentially just know that what I'm teaching is, is that just like I was, you are currently enslaved to sin. And I want you to keep listening, really pay attention, because I want you to know how you can be set free from that. So like I said, Daniel taught that there's a spiritual exodus coming 500 years later, and sure enough, Jesus comes about 500 years later. When Jesus comes, who's he presented as? Well, you can't just guess one person. There's a ton of Uh, Old Testament shadows that he is the realization of. But he's presented as a new Moses, especially in Matthew, particularly in Matthew. I'm going to show you really quickly how he's depicted as a new Moses. So remember in the original Exodus, what did the Pharaoh do to the Jewish boys? Remember he, he killed the Jewish boys, he had them drown in the river, but somehow Moses escaped. Well, in Matthew's gospel, Herod kills all the Jewish boys, but Jesus escapes, right? I have a handout here. Uh, Which one is it? Oh, yeah, so it's the fourth one. Uh, In uh, the original Exodus, Moses and Israel, they go through the water, which was parted by the spirit and breath of God. And in Matthew, Jesus goes... Uh, Oh, yeah, and in the uh, original, they go into the wilderness immediately after. Jesus goes through the water at baptism, anointed by the Holy Spirit, and immediately goes into the wilderness to be tempted 
just like the Israelites were. In the original Exodus, they go for 40 years into the wilderness to be tempted. Jesus goes in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. Matthew's like, you can't miss what I'm doing. No Jew would miss what Matthew's doing here. Even the temptations of Jesus while he's in the wilderness correspond to the failures of Israel in the wilderness. What do I mean by that? Let's look at this text. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So Satan comes and he tells Jesus to turn these stones into bread. What a weird temptation. You think, why would that be a sin? Well, what happened to the Israelites? They were getting bread from heaven and they were complaining about it. They weren't trusting God's provision. And Satan's bringing the exact same temptation to Jesus. God is making you starve. He's making you hungry out here. Turn this into bread. Eat. It's the same sort of idea, whereas the Israelites were not trusting uh, God, Jesus is tempted to, to do the same. Don't trust God's provision. He would have done the same thing if he would have ate the bread. It would have been complaining like they did, even though he didn't eat for 40 days. But what does Jesus say to Satan's temptation? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Another temptation was for Jesus to fall down and worship Satan. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So again, what does that remind you of? In the wilderness, the Jews fell down and worshiped a golden calf. Jesus here is being tempted, or at least having it thrown into him, bow down and worship me. And the text that Jesus uses, all of the three texts he uses in these temptations are from the book of Deuteronomy, which are written to correct the sins that Israel did in the, four, in the three previous books. Jesus is succeeding where Israel fell, which, by the way, is why his righteousness is imputed to us, because we see in the wilderness generation, we cannot obey God, we complain, but Jesus did uh, succeeded in our place. Jesus succeeded where Israel felled. So, what happens in the original Exodus after the Jews complained about the bread? Well, eventually they go, Moses, he goes up onto a mountain at Sinai and he brings the the Ten Commandments down to the people of Israel. What does Jesus do in Matthew after the wilderness? He goes up on a mountain and he gives the new law to the New Testament people of God. He's depicted as a new Moses that's going to liberate us. 
free us. Have you ever noticed, though, in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus takes the Ten Commandments and he applies them inwardly? You guys notice that? Rather than just, you know, do not murder, he says, don't even be angry with your brother. Rather than say, don't commit adultery, he says, don't even lust. Why is he doing that? Why is he taking external commandments, an external thing like murder, you can see that, that happens on the outside of the body. Adultery, that's external, that's outward. Lust and anger is within. Why is he doing that? Because a new exodus is coming, a liberation, a freedom from our internal slavery to sin is about to happen, and we will be a people that can follow commandments as a whole person, inwardly and outwardly. Now, we finally come to the cross. There's so many places I wanted to go, but we have to, for time, uh, we come to the cross. As one author said, Jesus chose Passover to die. Why did he do that? Why did he choose the Passover? He's wanting to make it extremely clear that all of these Old Testament events Passover, Exodus, they find their substance and greatest reality in him. They are all just shadows of Jesus. The original Passover, the original Exodus were made for this moment in Jesus on the cross. Let's compare really quickly the characteristics of Jesus to the Passover lamb. On the bulletin I gave you, there's some quick bullet points that compares them two together. Uh, look at that. There's both darkness in threes. The Old Testament Passover lamb, it says, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days, Exodus 10. And then Jesus, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Both lambs had to be perfect. Uh, Old Testament Passover lamb, your lamb shall be without blemish. Jesus, Jesus was like of a lamb without blemish or spot. Neither could have broken bones. Uh, the Passover lamb, you shall not break any of his bones. On the cross, it says, when they came to Jesus, they did not break his bones so that scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. They both had to be eaten. Exodus 12, they shall eat the flesh of the lamb that night. Matthew 26, now as they were eaten, Jesus took bread and after blessing it broke and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Both events had to be remembered. We already saw earlier where you had to remember uh, the day in which God brought you out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And that was celebrated once a year, Jesus' New Testament Passover meal. Do this in remembrance of me. And of course they both had to be slaughtered. They both had to be slaughtered. What exactly is happening that's freeing us from sin as Jesus is being crucified on the cross? Paul tells us in Romans 8, he said, for God has done 
what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God is judging, condemning sin in Jesus' flesh. And when he does that, the guilt is removed. Our penalty is removed. That crushes Satan's head. And then we receive the Holy Spirit and our chains are broken. Jesus is stronger than our captors. One author gave a, a great illustration that said that the way Satan controls us is with the chain of sin. He holds us with the chain of sin. He controls us with that. Satan is our Pharaoh. Our chains are our sin. Jesus is our God, our Moses, the son that died, and the Passover lamb all rolled into one. We saw that God judges sin at the cross, but what happens to us at the cross? That's important. What happens to us at the cross? Oh, wait, that's not, I don't have it. I'm just going to read it. He says, know this, our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. If you have been crucified with Christ, as Paul says, you have been freed from sin. You have been liberated. When we believe our old sinful nature is crucified, killed, done away with. We're no longer slaves. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. That's liberation. He didn't just die in our place to take our penalty. He actually freed us from what was enslaving us. He broke our chains. You might say, all that's great, you know, that's really interesting. I don't feel liberated. I sin all the time. I want to say two things. First, there should be an initial break from sin. There should be an initial break from sin. There should be a season uh, or time in the past where you were freed from the sins that you were once enslaved to. For me, it was just one day. One day. Bottle of vodka every night, all kinds of other things, next day, no more. One day. I'd experienced that real freedom, that liberation that comes through the blood of Jesus. But the second thing I want to make clear is that we aren't perfect. We aren't perfect. We still have to battle our sinful natures until we're going to die, until death. Until death. 
The book of Hebrews, just like the Old Testament people, it teaches that we are still in the wilderness awaiting to enter the eternal promised land. We're still there. We're still fighting. We can't do what the Jews did. Why did they complain? Because they looked back. They said, you're giving us bread, but we we used to eat meat and all kinds of other things when we were in Egypt. Let's go back to slavery. Let's go back being slaves. They forgot what God has done. We do that too. Some of us have been freed from addictions. Some of us have been freed from all kinds of sexual sin. Some of us have been saved from our own self-righteousness. But we look back. We look back. We think about how much fun it used to be to party. And you know, I don't just mean have some fun, some cake and stuff like that. You know what I'm talking about. I refuse to go any further into that explanation. We look back at the sexual sins maybe we used to be involved in. We see Jesus freed us from that. And now maybe we are a single Christian and we constantly look back to what we had before. And it's enticing calling us back to slavery. And the reason is because we forget. We forget what God did. And that's the point. That's why God said, celebrate this Passover to remember what I've done for you. That's why Jesus says, and that's why we practice or we celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper once a month here is because Jesus says, remember what I did. Remember, quit looking back. He says, anyone who has put their hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Do this in remembrance of me. We have to fight sin and we're going to continue fighting sin until death, but it's a slow process. We're told to take up our cross and crucify our sins. How is somebody crucified? Slowly. Usually days. And we are slowly, day by day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade, leaving behind, walking away from our old slavery of sin and walking closer and closer into the eternal promised land. We are slowly and slowly, uh, slowly leaving behind our old sinful, uh, sinful nature and becoming more and more like Jesus. You're free. If Jesus has died for you, your guilt is removed and you are free. And the reason for that is because Jesus has crushed the serpent's head. But that's for next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for releasing us from our bondage, releasing us from our chains, removing them. 
We pray, Father, that we would see this reality greater and greater in our lives. We pray that you would keep us from looking back to the sins that used to entice us and that we would look further into the distance of the reward of Jesus Christ in the eternal kingdom. We pray that Jesus would return and we pray that you would give us grace to persevere until then. We ask you this and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.